Good morning. This morning, <clears throat> we are going to look at the parable of the two builders. This is the last parable in this series, and yet it's the first parable in Matthew. So turn with me as we continue and uh, as we close our series on Simple Stories, Daring Truths to Matthew chapter 7. This parable has a little in front of it and a little after it, so I'd like to begin reading at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and the beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It said knowledge is power. Knowledge is power. That's one of those uh, sayings you've got to think about a little bit. Or maybe think about a lot. Knowledge is power. It makes sense to me if you think, for example, of a, a counselor. I'm having some difficulties uh, with my wife. Or a co-worker. Or my neighbor, or some friends. We're not getting along well. And as a result, I'm in a mood, and I can't seem to shake it, and I'm troubled. So I go to the counselor. Why do I go to the counselor? He has knowledge. He has knowledge that's powerful because he has knowledge that can help me. 
He has knowledge that can solve some of my problems. He has knowledge that it can, can explain my mood. He has knowledge that can give me guidance that will help me to restore my relationship with my wife or my coworker or my neighbor or my friend. What's interesting is that when I go to the counselor who has the knowledge that is power, I also have a greater power. I can deny it. I can refuse it. I can ignore it. Even though I might pay him for the knowledge. And what's also interesting is the counselor who gives me the knowledge, which is powerful, because it has this potential. The counselor can also use it to help me, heal me, yet the counselor can ignore it and deny it himself and suffer the same problems. So, yeah, knowledge is power, but it's potential power because ultimately it's only powerful if I let it affect me. And in a sense, in this parable, Jesus is saying, knowledge is obligation. If you find that my words have potential and you take it to heart, you accept it, you respond to it, you act upon it, then you're acknowledging its power by recognizing its obligation upon you. And you're doing something about it hear and do. And that's what the parable is really all about. It's a very straightforward parable. You can't miss it. You can't misunderstand it. Everybody wants to be like the wise builder. Nobody wants to be like the foolish builder. And the point is ever so clear. The bottom line of this parable is this. Jesus says, Anyone who hears my words and does not do them is a fool, is foolish. And in saying that, he's implying my words are rock solid. He wants us, everyone, if we join the crowd, who's listening to them, those words of his, because they're an appeal, they're a plea, they're an invitation to follow Jesus, to take his words to heart, to take his teachings to heart that they might become wisdom in our lives, to recognize in doing them his authority. Jesus is really simply saying, if you wish to follow me, it's in your best interests, to take my words to heart. What I teach you is important to following me. Treat my words as important. Do them that my way may become your way. My thoughts, your thoughts. My words, your wisdom. But we know that even though he has the words of life, that he is the way of life, it's hard sometimes. It takes trying, doesn't it? Doesn't it? You have to try. 
instead of doing what you'd be doing anyway? As if you never heard his words, when you hear his words, you got to try. You got to, well, the Bible has a word for that. It's called faith. Stepping out, exercising, you know, your belief, exercising your acceptance of what he says. And even at sometimes personal risk or difficulty. You know, sometimes doing what Jesus wants us to do just doesn't, doesn't fit within our plans. Um, sometimes we get our feelings hurt by somebody. They've injured us. We feel like they should come to apologize to us first, right? I mean, you, you hurt me deeply. You need to make that right. So I'm waiting. And I'm, I'm not going to do anything about it until you do something about it. Till you say you're sorry. Then Jesus comes along and he says, don't wait, go. You think he sinned against you? You think she sinned? Go to him. Talk to them. And then he says, you know, forgive and love and all that stuff. All that stuff nobody else is saying. Because if everybody else was saying, then we wouldn't have these kinds of problems, right? With, with other people. And so he's saying, do these things. And if we try, then we're exercising faith. If we say, okay, I'll take the first step, or I'll do it your way and not my way, that's faith. But it is risky. It is hard sometimes. And yet Jesus says that's the way of life. That's the way of wisdom. I want us to appreciate that. I don't think we should skirt it. That's what he's acknowledging, I think, here. Hearing his words, hearing the words of Jesus, is it's more than the way of life. It's the work of life. That's what I just want to focus us on this morning. I mean, if it was just about hearing, Jesus' work would have already been done. But he's talking about hearing, isn't he? He's saying, now you've been hearing me, now I want to talk about how you hear me. And I want you to do something next. I want you to do what I've been telling you. That's work. And I don't want us to sidestep that. I, I think if we face that, then we'll appreciate that it's not always easy doing what Jesus wants us to do. It's not the way we've been trained. It's not the way the world has groomed us. It's not the way all of our friends are going, right? That's, that stuff makes it hard. If nobody else is doing it, if you alone hear his words and decide, I'm going to do what he's telling me, even though nobody else does it, that's hard work, isn't it? I mean, that's, why, that's what we define work. At least that's in the rural, not the rural, the urban dictionary, where all the people live. It's in the urban dictionary. It's, it's the way we define work. I admit, sometimes I think of work this way too. It's like, what is work? Work is whatever I don't want to do. That's work. It's, it, what is work? It's work that's not fun. I don't call fun work usually, you know? I understand that. That's the way we use the word work. But I want us to think about this work just a little differently. Think about it as wisdom. 
Because wisdom doesn't see work as work. Wisdom sees work as doing what is of worth or of value, of good. That's the kind of stuff Jesus is asking us to do. Just want to draw a few things to our attention in hearing the words of Jesus as the way of life and the work of life. Take Jesus' words to heart. I'm going to run through all three of these points. Turn Jesus' teachings into wisdom and trust Jesus' authority. In verse 24, there's a, there's a quality to, to what Jesus is saying here that, that appeals directly to the heart. It appeals to a personal relationship. Or it presumes when he says, everyone therefore, or then, who hears these words of mine and does them. In other words, my words, not just anybody's words. That makes it kind of personal. I want you to do what I'm telling. That's the relationship of discipleship. And he wants us to take it to heart as disciples. We live in a world where words are cheap. I mean, they don't have to be, but there are so many of them that they can become very true. And we live in the age of just mass information. If you're connected to more than one, two, three, or four platforms of social media, I mean, it's like putting a fire hose in your mouth. The words, the words, the words, the words, all the information, all the data, it's just coming at you in huge tsunami waves. And, and in a sense, there are just so many that it tends to kind of reduce the value of them. It's kind of hard to pick out the words that really matter. And the fact that we've lived in a world in which this was the case, but now more than so, I mean, what do we mean if we don't mean that words are cheap when we say a picture is worth a thousand words? I mean, two pictures, 2,000 words. I mean, just a handful of pictures, thousands of words. Or how about actions speak louder than words? Wow. Just an action is worth a slew of words. It, it, it has more attention-getting power than just words. And what Jesus is getting at are the difference between, you might say, words that are cheap and words that are rock solid and valuable. I mean, he starts off, and I took us back to verse 14, dealing with the false, uh, false prophets Verse 15, beware of false prophets. How does he describe a false prophet? Well, he says, they dress like they're sheep, but they're ravenous wolves inside. But he says, you'll know them. You'll know they're really wolves and not sheep by the fruit that they produce. 
That becomes kind of the basis of everything he's saying about being hearers and doers and not just hearers because the ultimate issue is if we aren't doing these things, if we're hearing and not doing, then we're saying words are cheap. And Jesus just, he wants what we all want. He wants us to be people of our word. He doesn't want us to be people of a double standard. He wants us to be people who are authentic and real. This, uh, it's in the news a lot about the nuns and the generation, the present generation that is leaving the church. And why? Because people aren't authentic, or it's not real, or it's not genuine. It's, it's somehow not true to itself. It's somehow false. Well, that's probably the case. I, I think that's true. I, I see people who name the name of Jesus, and so did Jesus. That's what he's talking about. This isn't anything new. This is the human condition. But Jesus is saying, if you want to become an authentic, true, genuine follower of me, then you can't just collect words. You've got to put them to work. You've got to be real. That was the way it was when I was, I mean, that was true for me as a young person. I don't know that this is a great revelation. I think it's good that we always want to strive for authenticity and honesty and genuineness. Isn't that what we all want? I mean, we all live, we live in the, in the most rampant consumer nation in the world. Nobody has it better than we do. And we want, you know, we want what's advertised, don't we? People crow in the social media about getting a good deal. Or they'll talk to you about a real mechanic or a good doctor or a good, I don't know, hairdresser. Why? Because they offer a service at a fair price and they give you what they offer. Wow. This is called honesty. It's also called being real and genuine and true. And, and it's always been what people want. It's as old as justice. And Jesus wants it of us, not just in general, but when it comes to saying, I am a disciple of him. I follow him. I do what he says. When I was a... Back in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, the long hair, earring, beard. And marching against the Vietnam. Why did I march against the Vietnam? I was searching for real meaning. I wanted to make a difference in the world. I think every young person does. And I think the trick in life, by the way, is to keep that fire burning. A lot of us just get, we get tired of trying to find meaning in life or do the right thing. And we just get, we just get lazy after a while and we, we, just, we just want to have fun or enjoy life. Or find the easiest point, the easiest line between two points. But back when we're young, 
We're supposed to make a difference. We have ideas and values, and I did too. And our ideas and values were very simple. Love, peace, and justice. And that's what we stood for. And we could see all of the shortcomings and failings in our government and our foreign policy and what was going on in Vietnam, or so we thought. And we bound together. We were a tribe. We belonged. And it was encouraging. But you know what I found? And it didn't take me long. We talked about love, peace, and justice And we could see where it wasn't happening in others, but we couldn't see that it wasn't happening in us. We were just as flawed and wrong as they were, even in the way we treated each other. We didn't always treat one another with love, peace, and justice. I can remember having issues with my parents as a young man. Here I was marching for love, peace, and justice. I wasn't treating them with love, peace, and justice. I was finding fault in them. In other words, you can fly for quite a while just in finding fault with others, especially if you're blind to finding any fault of the same kind in yourself. But I couldn't. It's called wanting to be honest, real and genuine. And the short end of the story is it led me straight to Jesus Christ. Because he was the only one that offered to change me from the inside out in a way that I couldn't change on my own from the outside in or anybody else. I realized that the greatest cause in my life would be if God could change me. That would be a contribution to the world That would be a stunning addition to the world if I could just be changed. And you know what he has. But that's what he wants. And it starts with hearing and doing. Soren Kierkegaard, in his book, The Sickness and the Death, he tells about, well, it's a parable. And let me just read you. It's very short. A thinker could be a philosopher, great teacher. A thinker erects an immense building, a system which embraces the whole of existence and world history. And if we contemplate his personal life, we discover to our astonishment this terrible and ludicrous fact that he himself personally does not live in this immense high-vaulted palace, but in a barn alongside of it, or in a dog kennel, or at most in a porter's lodge. If one were to take the liberty of calling his attention to this by a single word, he would be offended, for he has no fear of being under a delusion if only he can get the system completed by means of the delusion. Well, I guess we all kind of erect a view of the world, but sometimes we don't make ourselves live in the view of the world that we expect others to live by. Jesus doesn't want that for his disciples. He wants us to be a people 
who say one thing and do that one thing. He doesn't want us to be those who say one and do another. A people of our word. But moreover, a people of his word. You know, a double standard is that where I want you to do what I don't ask myself to do. We don't want to be a people of a double standard. Sometimes that's hard work. Jesus made a lot of it, a great deal of it, when he talked about judging not lest you be judged, as he does in the opening of this chapter, verses 1 through 5 of this very chapter we're in. I encourage you to look at it. All he's saying is is that if you're going to judge others, at least judge yourself by the same standard. That's the point he's making. Because we all do that. We judge others. But then he says, now judge yourself by the same standard. And then in verse 12, he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I know how I want to be treated. And Jesus just says, that's great. But treat them the way you want to be treated. Verse 12, he says that. In fact, he says something astonishing. He says, if you'll do that, you'll fulfill the whole law. I mean, sometimes we say, well, how do I do the will of God? There's so much of it. I can't even keep it straight. If I just knew what he wants me to do right now, well, there it is. That's it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Just try it this week in everything you do. Just use the standard of how you want to be treated and then treat everyone else by that same standard. And Jesus, you have this confirmation from him. You are fulfilling the whole law, the Torah. You see, the hard part is the power to do that. And that, needs, that means needing a Lord who's over me. I need someone who is bigger than me, who will make me, who will draw me, who will sway me, influence me, encourage me. The one I want to serve more than myself, because if I want to serve myself, I break all these laws. That's why hearing has to be matched by doing. I have to want to do what he wants me to do. And I have to want to do what he wants me to do more than I want to do what I want to do. Miroslav Volf said, we may believe in Jesus, but we do not believe in his ideas. I hope that's not true. Or Kierkegaard says, if it's so hard to believe because it's so hard to obey. But see, what he's trying to say is, we don't really believe it if we don't obey it. We're just saying it, but we're not doing it. That's always a hard one to chew on. But that's what we've got to be striving for. That's what Jesus is calling us to when he says, follow me. Follow me. Trust, oops, trust his authority. Second thing, verses 24 again, and then verses 28 and 29. Jesus is saying again, my words are rock solid. Back in that day, the Jewish teachers would cite the opinions of others. 
I tend to do that myself. I like to lean on the authority of people that I look up to, that I think are more important than me, or have better things to say than me, or have better ways to say the better things to say than me. Jesus is saying, I don't need to lean on anybody else. These are my words. And ultimately, he's putting into words the very heart and authority of God. In fact, he said earlier, we read it, he says, you call me Lord, Lord. If you really want to call me Lord, then do what he wants you to do. Remember when his parents, his mother, his brother, sister came, they sent someone in to where Jesus was with a band of, of followers, disciples. They said, have him come out. And they were there because they thought, they thought he'd gone, you know, off the deep end. They wanted to protect him from himself and from the things he was saying. And you know what Jesus said to his disciples? He says, who are my brothers and sisters? Who is my mother? Those who do the will of God. Boy, that's a bond of relationship we don't always think about. And that's a, a basis of teaching that can become great wisdom. Believe is a verb. Belief is a noun. I want to be a believer, not just a person of beliefs. Rabbi Zach Zacharias said, an opinion you carry, but a conviction carries you. Well, that's... that's that's really true. We have lots of opinions, but it's only the convictions that lead us, that we follow. Jesus is worthy of those convictions. We like to say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I, I think that's true. I, over the years, I've done a lot of counseling. I have lots of couples that have come to see me. Often they come to see me when their relationships are in difficult times. Husbands and wives will come and see me. And when I listen to them over a period of time, I begin to get a picture of their relationship. And the best way I can describe their relationship to you is, the re is a floor plan. You've seen blueprints. Maybe you've seen your own home laid out as a floor plan and you look down on that blueprint you can see oh yeah there's my bedroom and there's the kitchen and there's the dining room and there's the family room and there's the guest room there's the garage well when I look at their relationship their relationship is like that floor plan but they're only living in parts of the house there are parts of the house, you say, that room, oh, we don't go in that room anymore. And that room, no, we don't go in that room anymore either. And why is it that you don't go in those rooms anymore? Well, I'll tell you why, because they just won't talk about it anymore. They won't listen to each other. They won't be changed on a subject anymore. They've both stood their ground. So one says, I'm not going there. And so now they live maybe just in the kitchen and the family room. That is when a relationship becomes a religion. 
And it can happen to us with Jesus Christ. We can get to that point where we just won't listen anymore. Or we'll listen to others who tell us what Jesus said wasn't important for us. It's not important for our time. It's important for another time. I'll tell you, when Jesus speaks to you, try. Just try to follow him. Just try to do it his way. When I came here 14 years ago, I can remember the exact date of what I'm going to share with you. It was December 6, 1999. And I remember it so clearly because the night before, on December 5th, Grace Community Church ratified what the elders presented to them, which was the call of God on my life to become the pastor of Grace Community Church. December 5th. The very next morning, I had a breakfast meeting with one of the pastors here at the church. He wanted to know a little about the future. We had a great and cordial talk. But this pastor had a problem with another pastor here at the church. And I said, well, I'm, I'm really hopeful that as we pray, and, you know, I hope you'll work with this person. And because I need you two to work together. And that pastor looked at me and in all sincerity said to me, I, I'm not sure that's possible. And then he said, and I quote, that would take a miracle. And I said, that's great because we're in the miracle business. If anybody should be recognizing that God is a God of miracles, it's the pastor's. What happens in our lives? I mean, just, just pick the big stuff that Jesus says. Love, forgive. You know, you're loved, so love. You're forgiven, so forgive. Just, just take those two. What happens to the church when we quit loving and we quit forgiving? when certain people become exceptions to what Jesus asks us to do. That's a huge problem. That's the problem pastors shouldn't have to deal with, but it's the problem that pastors deal with more than anything else. Followers of Jesus who won't forgive another person or won't love another person. That's just, that's a big problem. We've got a, what do they call that, like in politics? Um, help me out, Lord. Well, you know, we've got a real problem. We've got a marketing problem. We've got a promotion problem. Uh, we've got a, a problem of being genuine when those things become rooted in a relationship because then the relationship is just words and it becomes religion. But when we do it, it becomes wisdom.
It becomes wisdom. And that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to be like the wise builder. I mentioned that because that's when Jesus' authority really becomes authority, you know? I was thinking there are three different ways that come to mind that we could talk about the authority of Jesus. We could talk about the words that actually are used uh, in the New Testament to ascribe authority. We could look at those words, and that would help us to understand the authority of Jesus. And then we could look at the very identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And his unique and special status would help to illumine and elevate our sense of his authority. But something that we don't often do, and I would just like to close with this, is we don't look at his authority by what he asks us to do. Who else is asking you to do the things Jesus does? Who else is asking you to love, to forgive? Who else is asking you to enter the kingdom of God and let God rule, influence your life the way Jesus is? Some of you are well-read. What religious leader talks like Jesus? What great philosopher talks like Jesus? And then when you think of what he's actually asking you to do, he's not trying to manipulate you to his own ends. He's not trying to get you to serve some unrighteous purposes. He's asking you to live sacrificially in a way that serves the ends of God, love, and forgiveness. I'll tell you that... For the guy who was all about love, peace, and justice, he's the only one that's saying it and doing it and funding it through his own life and spirit. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. But after I say amen, pastoral staff are going to be here, elders, deacons, elders and their wives, deacons too. Come on down. How has God spoken to you? If you'd like to pray with us, we're here down in front to pray with you about what God has spoken to our hearts this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the authenticity that bonifies everything you do. Not from afar, but up close and at great personal cost. You're in this with us in the truest sense of the word. And we thank you for for it, for lifting our eyes, our sights, our hearts, inspiring us, calling us to things that are greater than ourselves, obviously, because of who you are. And we praise and thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen.